Welcome to the Men of Character Conference with your host, Bill Maser. Welcome back, everybody, to the Men of Character Conference. Uh, in this talk here, I have Amy Morin. Uh, Amy is a best-selling author, uh, a psychotherapist, and a keynote speaker. She's the author of two amazing books that you guys need to check out, uh, What Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and uh, 13 Things uh, Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and 13 Things uh, Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. So two really fantastic. Also check out her, her TED Talk, uh, which I think is what, what, uh, what, where a lot of people saw her, millions of people saw her. So welcome, Amy. Thank you for joining the, the Men of Character Conference. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So for, for those in the audience that maybe are not as familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a therapist by trade. Uh, that's where I started my career, and I um, became an author over the years. And as you said, I have two books that are out. I'm working on a third. And I spend a lot of my time now uh, traveling the world and talking about mental strength. And I am a columnist for Forbes and Inc. and Psychology Today. And I write for Very Well. And uh, I'll lecture at Northeastern University in Boston. And I spend most of my time these days living on a sailboat in the Florida Keys, doing all of wow. this stuff remotely. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. And, and just to explain for the viewers, so you're, you're, up in like the mountains or a cabin right now. So that's why you're, you're audio only. Is that right? Yes. I'm in a cabin in the woods where the uh, internet is sort of at a crawl. So it's not quite fast enough for video. <laughs> gotcha. And you, this has all happened like before you wrote your first book and your TED talk, this is like all happened within the last couple of years, right? All the things that you're doing, which is incredible. Yeah, so um, to explain the story behind it, how I became, I always yeah. say I'm an accidental author, because uh, I never intended to write a book. I never imagined I'd be speaking on big stages. Um, I was a therapist, and I was pretty happy with my with my work as a therapist, working one-on-one -on -one with people in my therapy office, but uh, I sort of went into the uh, into my career thinking, okay, I, I learned stuff from a textbook. I'm going to help other people be mentally strong. This is great. But it was really um, about a year or so into my career that my interest in mental strength became personal. My mom had passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And it was in that moment that I thought, okay, this isn't just about teaching other people about skills. It's about also figuring out how do I apply these skills to my own life? And I, you know, I'd seen people who'd come in who'd gone through hard times and they just felt like they were never able to go on and live a happy life or that they could never feel like they were whole again. And I wanted to know how come some people felt that way and other people didn't. Other people said, you know, gosh, I persevere. I get through tough times. And um, so I started studying people for my, for my own interest of knowing what's the difference between some, some of these people who just remain so optimistic and they persist despite whatever life throws their way. And then on the three-year anniversary, it was three years to the day that my mom died, my 26-year-old husband died. And I really had to, again, figure out how do I go through life now and uh, figure out what, do I, what am I doing here? What am I going to do next? How do I grieve? How do I honor all of these feelings that I have um, without feeling like I'm just being reduced by them? How do I make sure that I come out of this stronger? And in the midst of all of that, I, I really wanted to keep the house that my husband and I had, but on one income, it was going to be quite tough. And so I started writing as a way to earn extra money. And, and that helped me keep, keep afloat. So if I just had a little side hustle, 
uh, writing articles here and there. It helped me feel more financially secure. And a few years down the road, I was fortunate. I found love again, got remarried, and life was looking pretty good. And shortly after that, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was thinking, oh, this isn't fair. When something good happens, I have to go through this. And why, why me? Why do I have to keep losing loved ones? And sort of in the midst of my pity party, I thought, okay, that's not helpful. If I've learned anything so far, it's that thinking that way would drain my mental strength. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of all of the things that I thought would drain my mental strength, things that I'd learned over the years from my clients in my therapy office and through my own process. And when I was done, I happened to have 13 things on this list. And I would read over that list uh, as often as I could and it would keep me strong when I needed it the most. And I thought, okay, if this list is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. So I published it online without really any context. It was basically just the list of the 13 things with a little explanation about each one um, and stepped away from my computer and thinking maybe a few people would read it, but that list went on to be read by 50 million people. And so before I knew it, people from around the world, the news stations were calling me and asking me all about this uh, list that I had and how I'd mastered all of these things, but nobody knew I wrote it because I too struggled with all 13 of those things. And then I was lucky that in the midst of all of that, a literary agent called and said, you should write a book. And that was the moment that changed everything. And I ended up writing my first book um, within a few months after that called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And it's been an adventure ever since, since that book came out. It's been it's now in 32 languages and it's hit bestseller lists all over the world and led to uh, the follow-up book. And now I get to travel the world and talk about mental strength and what I've learned along the way. Yeah, no, it's a, when I read your first book and um, I think I heard it on, I had it on Audible and it was just an incredibly inspiring story. The fact that you went through all these things and you, yeah, the, you know, you, you, you had to live it, um, which, you know, unfortunately I think just happens, right? Part of life is people pass yes. away, people sick and, and you can choose, like you said, you can choose to, to think that it's, you know, just not fair for you or you can sort of persevere. Um, I feel like I should write a, maybe I, should, I need to write a 13 things, men of, a, a man of character. I don't, I don't know if it'll go that viral. <laughs> oh, 50 million people. What, what, <laughs> what year was this that you wrote this article? Because I feel like 50 million. I wrote the probably, article. Yeah, go ahead. I wrote the article in November of 2013. And within oh, okay. a couple of days of writing it, Forbes picked it up and it got 10 million views on the Forbes website and which was there all of all time and then um, a lot of other uh, radio stations Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh picked it up in Success Magazine and Psychology Today and Business Insider and just kept gotcha. going on and on and building yeah. So did you 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 mentioned that you, you wrote this list really for you and then you you posted online and and now you, you have people coming telling asking you like hey how are you so mentally strong so do you feel like your work has almost helped reinforce or you know obviously you could have chose the opposite which is well I don't feel like I'm mentally strong but do you feel like you have to actually live that meant like the what you've written and it keeps you more honest to that it does it definitely keeps me accountable and you know and I'm not saying I'm the um, mentally strongest person in the world I don't just like everybody else I still struggle um, yeah. but talking and and writing about this list certainly reinforces to me as a great reminder of, hey, don't do these things. 
And I think we all have room for improvement. And it's not that we're either mentally strong or we're mentally weak or it's a continuum. We all fall somewhere on that spectrum. And I think on any given day, we might be closer to the mental strength end than uh, other days. But that it's all about the choices we make every single day. You can wake up and say, I'm going to choose to do some exercises, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to choose to build my mental muscle, even though I'm not really feeling it today. Um, but it's all about choices. And I think certainly now that I talk so much about it on such a, a bigger scale than I used to, I used to just talk to, you know, one-on-one -on -one people in my therapy office. Now I get to talk about to bigger audiences, but it's a lot of the same stuff I was doing before. And um, just on a bigger scale now. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. I'm obviously, uh, this conference is nowhere as near big as what, what your article did, but you know, now that I've announced this, uh, men of character, I feel like I have gotten a little bit of heat of like, well, who does this guy think he is? Like, who, you know, he's such high character. <laughs> so I feel like I have, I'm like, well, I've never, I don't feel like I ever claimed that, that I did have a, um, yeah, that I was like the perfect, uh, man of character, but I do feel like I'm going to use it to, to keep me honest. And, and now, now there's more, it feels like there's more responsibility even outside of what I previously had. So I find that interesting, but let's, let's dig in to your, sorry, my phone's going off where actually people are purchasing the, the conference. So that's a good thing. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That's my stripe. So let's get into your, your book. Your So I want to talk, hopefully we can, we have time to talk about both of them because I think they're both really, really important. And I think everyone should read them regardless. Um, but your, your first book, What Mentally Strong, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Let's, let's just go through a couple of those uh, 13 things. So one thing you mentioned um, is why we should not waste time feeling sorry for ourselves. So explain that. You know, you had something terrible occur, multiple things that were uh, health-related occur, occurred to people close to you. And, and why did you decide that it wasn't helpful to feel sorry for yourself? you know, self-pity, it's different than just, it's okay to be sad. In fact, feeling sad and hurt and angry and all of those emotions are helpful. It can be part of the healing process. But when you pity yourself, it goes beyond that. It's when you start to think my life is worse than everybody else's, or this is terrible, horrible, and awful. And you start really dwelling on how bad you feel. And when you get stuck into that pattern, it's like uh, you actually dig in your heels and you start to become sort of hopeless and helpless. And thinking, you know, the world's an awful place, my life will never be good again. All of those sorts of things obviously aren't going to be helpful to your healing process. It slows it down, it keeps you stuck. And just like any of the 13 bad habits, doing any of those, no matter how many good habits you have, it's like it counteracts it. And I'm a big fan of saying, let's work smarter, not just harder. So if you want your good habits to be effective, then you got to give up the bad habits that are keeping you stuck, weighing you down, holding you back. And I, you know, obviously this one was the first one on the list as I was writing this letter to myself because I thought, you know, in the midst of all this right now, thinking that my life is terrible, horrible, and awful isn't going to be helpful to myself or anybody else. But something I'd seen in my therapy office too, that sometimes people would say, okay, I'm ready to change my life. But then they would just really get stuck into insisting on I can't change or my life is too bad or I have all this hardship and poor me. And they didn't actually want to do anything about it. And it's so important that no matter what you go through in life, that you can make choices that make your life or somebody else's life better and focusing on what you, um, what you can do is really important so that you don't get stuck in a pity party. Do you, yeah. Do you, do you think that this is somewhat human nature? Do you, 
or do you, yeah, what are your theories around why? Because I feel like it is a constant, um, you know, you get, I think over time, I, I would consider myself somewhat mentally strong. So I'm, I'm speaking from that standpoint. Like over time, you're more naturally resilient and you have better thoughts, but you do have to like constantly make sure that you're, you're not pitting yourself or thinking that things aren't fair. So is that part of human nature? Is it, are we too spoiled as a society? What's the cause there, do you think? Yeah, you know, I think it's a combination of all of those things that um, we tend to think that, uh, you know, it's hard to get outside of your own head sometimes when something bad happens. We tend to think, gosh, these things only happen to me. Really, it happens to everybody. Just like my story isn't particular. Their inner talk, I think, later on, and we don't realize that. Yeah, and I think sometimes we think pushing ourselves or pushing kids really, really hard helps them to become better, but study after study shows that a self-compassionate approach actually improves our performance rather than beating yourself up verbally. Yep. All right, so I think we've covered a lot of these in our talk here. One thing that one I th that I'd like to talk about before we wrap up is why should parents not and you've touched on this a little bit but why should parents not lose sight of their values? In our world, it's so easy right now to get caught up into into the daily hustle and bustle of homework and soccer practice and everything else we have going on, and then you sort of forget what's the bigger picture, and and studies too that it'll show that um, parents really focus a lot on on grades and the outcome. And kids sometimes cheat. They do anything they can because they think my parents really value that I get a good grade in this class over that my parents value me being an honest or a nice person. And uh, so I think it's so important for us to look at what are we actually teaching our kids? Uh, I see so many parents who are worried about their kids' character, but at the same time, they're the same parents sometimes who are lying to get their 13-year-old into the buffet saying he's 11 just to save $2. And I think it says so much about, you know, how do you interact? How do you deal with um, the wait staff? How do you treat other people? How do you handle it when somebody else makes a mistake? And it's an opportunity to teach kids life lessons. Yeah. With a much bigger picture. Asked in the shuffle is we're just worried about the day-to-day -day problems that, that we all face. Makes sense. Um. One, one other one that I thought was really interesting and, and I agreed with, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, which was why should we not complain as parents? What does that teach our children? Again, it goes back to teaching kids about self-talk and it reinforces the victim mentality and it teaches them that you, know, you can't take action. And sometimes we think venting and complaining is helpful. It helps me get my feelings out. But study after study shows that that just sort of keeps you in this state of um, being disgruntled. The more you complain, but you don't take any action and it goes back to focusing on the things you can control. And to just to teach kids, yeah, okay, I had a bad day, but it's up to me to figure out if I'm gonna make it a bad night too. Here's how I'm gonna turn my day around. Here's how I'm gonna deal with things that I don't like. I'm gonna take action or I'm just gonna accept it and move on. And um, it really teaches kids, how do you deal with things that you don't like or how do you know when do you speak up for something and when do you just uh, move on with your day and that's a really important skill if an umpire calls a strike and you don't agree with it are you going to argue with the umpire or do you just accept it 
versus when you see somebody being bullied in school, do you speak up then? I think it's really important to teach kids. Okay, sometimes you need to take action. Sometimes you just need to stay quiet and move on. Um, and it's a advanced social skill and not even see plenty of adults who struggle with that too. So it's really about teaching them. How do you handle that? How do you handle situations? How do you know when it's okay to, to speak up to somebody versus when do you just stay quiet and live with it? Yep. So I've got just two more here and then, and then we can wrap up. I want to hear, I want to ask you about your, your new book as well, because you mentioned it. Um, why should we not confuse, we talked a little bit about discipline before, but why should we not confuse discipline uh, for punishment? So there's a, a difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline's about teaching your child to do better next time. And punishment is about making your child suffer for a mistake that he already made. So when it comes to uh, how you would respond to, to a mistake, discipline's about saying, how do you do better? And that's not to say you don't give your child a consequence, because you do. Maybe you take away his electronics, or maybe you put her in timeout, and that can help teach life lessons. But when we punish kids, it's more about, um, you know, I'm going to take away your electronics until I can trust you again. And maybe that's three months down the road. And we're not really then teaching them life lessons. So it's so important for us to just take a look at Am I punishing my child because it makes me feel better in the moment? Am I punishing him because I'm embarrassed that he got in trouble at school? Am I using this as a way to try to embarrass or humiliate my kid or shame him, shame him into doing better next time? Or am I using a tool that will actually teach him a life lesson and how do you, how do, you do better? And I see a lot of parents who are desperate and they end up resorting to all of these punishments, but then kids don't actually feel good about themselves. And I have a lot of parents that will make fun of the whole self-esteem thing and say, well, why would I want to work on my kid's self-esteem? And um, it doesn't matter how, if he feels good about himself, he messes up all the time. But the truth is, you know, let's say fast forward to when your child's 15 years old and somebody says, offers him drugs, which kid's going to say no to that? The one who feels really good about himself or the one who feels really bad about himself? And, you know, the kids who feel good about themselves have enough respect to make healthy choices. So you just want to make sure that your child knows you made a bad choice, but you're not necessarily a bad person. You're still a good person. And when kids get that message, they go on to make good choices. So is because I feel like, you know, I've, recently you hear you do hear a lot of the trashing of, you know, building up self-esteem and that it's been overdone. And I tend to agree with a lot of it, but it isn't the difference that what you're what you're promoting here is like self-esteem through actual life lessons versus self-esteem through just words which i think yes because I, I agree a lot of the self-esteem stuff has gotten really twisted and i'll see a parents who will say to their kid you're the fastest runner in the whole school you're the smartest kid in the whole world you're the best kid at math that has ever lived and that's not what you want to do. That inflates kids' egos in a really unhealthy way. You want to give realistic praise where you can say to your child, gosh, you know, I'm going to praise your effort, but not necessarily the outcome. So instead of saying, great job scoring three baskets in the game today, you might say, you hustled really hard, and I'm proud of that. Because it's more about how much effort and energy you put into something, or you studied really hard and that paid off, and you did, because of all that hard work you put into that, test you manage to do really well that's great um but then even if they don't do well if the outcome isn't awesome you can still say you studied really hard and i'm proud that you did that and it's not about everybody gets a trophy and you don't praise your child for everything but to make sure that you just point out the things that they're doing well and that praise doesn't always have to be about um 
about the outcome. Sometimes you can praise kids too for saying, you know, I noticed on the playground today, you went over and invited that kid to play who didn't have anybody to play with. That was a really nice thing to do. And to point out those sorts of things too, because unfortunately I see so many parents who just are focused on making sure that their kid has the best grades or is the best player on the field. And, um, and that goes back to losing sight of their values too for a lot of them. But um, yeah, you just wanna make sure that your child knows they have a healthy outlook on their limitations, that they know that they're not perfect, that they are aware that they have plenty of weaknesses, but on the other hand, that they also are empowered to know I can make a difference in the world. Yep, I think that's huge. And I'll, I'll also mention, there's another speaker in the conference, um, Garrett Smith, who has his talk is first principle parenting. And it really focuses on trying to make eight out of your 10 things, whether they're good things or bad things, that eight of those things that you point out are positive behaviors. And he talks about some study that, that was done that showed like the impact that they had on children of building them up on the things that you agree when they, what, what they're, you support what they're doing rather than constantly just pointing out the things that you don't like and, 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 and criticizing them. So definitely yes. check that out for other people listening to this talk. Um, so I just have one more question. I, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, how can kids learn self-control? Uh, there's a, so there's a lot of stuff parents can do to um, the book has tons of exercises about self-control, but um, it can be a matter of teaching them actual skills like, okay, when you really want that cookie and I said, no, how do you deal with that? And it could be about uh, managing their emotions or being able to say, okay, I'm really frustrated right now. Sometimes just labeling their emotions is good. Uh, you can also point out self-control when you notice your child is, is using it, whether your child, you say, gosh, I know you really wanted to hit your brother when he was doing that today and you didn't. So that was a great job. Point out times when they are doing it and then you can practice it. There's games you can play to practice it. Um, stuff with self-discipline, it could be as simple as playing that old game of uh, red light, green light. Um, and then pointing out, you know, uh, about how do you manage your impulses? How do you, uh, how do you deal with tough feelings? Um, and it's a skill, but it's such an important skill. Kids who grow up with better self-control do better in life. And study after study will show that, that, um, that they can delay gratification and be in it for the long haul. So I think it's something that is easy to overlook, especially in our world today where we get everything at the click of a button and we want things to happen and we want it to happen now. And that, that rubs off on the kids for sure. So to teach them that, um, you have to have self-control and here's how you learn it. And it's all about the skills that you need to get there and how it's going to serve them well in life. So I think it's really important to make that a, to emphasize that in your parenting to make sure that that's a skill that your child is gaining. Yep. I think, yeah, we need more parents to do that for sure. So that's all the questions I had just wrapping up. What, what are, you mentioned you're working on a book. I don't know if you're, if you're willing to share that, but I'm sure the audience now would be uh, eager to hear what you're working on or what other things you're working on that we should know about. Yes, yeah, so my next book is actually a women's book. I know this is a men's conference, but um, 13 well, Things the, Mentally Strong Women. <laughs> <laughs> so in December, the end of December 31st, uh, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do Hits the Shelves. And it was really... My readers have really guided uh, the book. So um, obviously the first book came from the article. And then after the first book, I kept getting so many questions. How do I teach kids how to be mentally strong? 
which led to the parenting book. And then when the parenting book came out, I was getting a lot of questions, especially from moms about, okay, how do, how do women be mentally strong and how do we be good role models? There's so much out there about you know, being tough in the, in the way of a Navy SEAL or something like that. But women wanted to know what it's like to be a woman who's mentally strong. So that's really what led to this next book. Awesome. I'll, well, I know my wife will be uh, purchasing it. She was the one that purchased your book and, and, and put me in, in yeah, that, that, that made me aware of your work. So I know she'll be all over that. But I hope other men here will buy it for their mothers, wives, and, and girlfriends and daughters as well. Um, yeah, so what, where else can people find you? Uh, your website, are, are you active on any social media yeah, so, you know, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, Amy Morin Author, um, on Facebook and Instagram, and Twitter, I'm at Amy Morin LCSW, um, which means Licensed Clinical Social Worker, um, and then my website, and of course, there's always articles on Inc. and Forbes and Psychology Today as well. Awesome, and I would, yeah, I would encourage everyone to, we've talked about the books, but we didn't cover all the the 13 things of each book, but um, go out and buy those books because uh, they're fantastic reads and, and extremely useful immediately. Uh, you can put them into practice like pretty quickly. So thank, I just want to thank you, Amy, for taking time out of your, uh, your time up in the cabin in the mountains to do this. And I think it's been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me.